Hi, Serena. How are you? Hello. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Have to go back to unmute. Getting all situated. <laughs> My daughter's making popcorn. I don't know if you can hear it in the microwave. Oh no. <laughs> Moving around. How's your week been? A little bit better this week? A little bit. It's been off and on. Kind of crazy. There's a lot of running around today. Oh, very annoying, especially in the summer. How's your schedule these days? Busy, but um, yeah, quite more busy than I expected. Soon it will be less busy. <laughs> good progress on Cell Shop over the weekend. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, we can, we can talk later, but the stupid um, number that we need still didn't get through and approved. I don't know why it's taking forever. I guess because it's summer. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> All set up and comfy on the couch here. So how fair memory burns into brains. I was afraid to miss this one. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> always missed when you're not here. No. And I had so to, I had to like, take over the Glia questions, but I'm not doing it as well as you do. <laughs> <laughs> I really felt bad about missing a Glia room. I haven't even gotten the replay yet. So I'm thinking there's that got to be astrocytes involved in this talk. Or I'm going to be suspicious. Yeah, for sure. Like, they're involved in everything, but, um. They really are. <laughs> oh, I, I came on a paper. Um, like, it's long been known that neurons are can be place cells. You know, they code for location. Yeah. But it was, it was a new paper that, uh, showed that astrocytes also do so, but in a in a non-redundant way. They don't just mirror the neurons; they encode location in a different way with unique information. Oh wow, that's so cool! I didn't know that. You have to send 
That's yeah, it was a new, I'll send you. But it was really surprising because it wasn't just mirroring what the neurons, it's like the, the neurons were more precise and the astrocytes had like a coarser representation of place. Um, but the two, when they're combined, it gives, um, you know, a broader, I mean, there's, there's unique information in both. So I thought that was, I really wonder cool. if it works kind of like how uh, compression does for JPEG, where you have kind of uh, more coefficients at, uh, uh, kind of, uh, finer resolutions. And that's kind of what the astrocytes provide. But in terms of, um, how fear memory burns into brains, uh, like my thought was, or uh, how I learned about it was that it was a reductionist system. So it's always pruning and any trauma early on in life prunes those pathways. So then it's hard to, uh, then have anything else because it's not like you're learning how to be afraid. It's that the response that would have been otherwise not fear was cut away. And all you have is a fear response pathway. Well, the, so I think the microglia have a lot to do with the pruning. Um, but I've read some papers where, where fear is involved with astrocytes is, it has to do with, um, you know, the synchronous firing and the coordination uh, be, this was particularly between the amygdala and the hippocampus. So there was a study um, looking at the astrocyte involvement in, in making that a, you know, more coordinated. And so, you know, the fear response is, is more efficient in the sense that it, that it, it gets a synchronous lock in, but I'll be curious what, um, what our guest speaker has to say about it. But it's true. I think we had a, um, a guest speaker go through the development in microglia pruning of synapses and how if you, if you play with that, it can either over prune or under prune. And then the rest of the life time of that individual is, is modulated. And, uh, and uh, just to quickly uh, comment, uh, Serena, your your advice a long time ago about uh, having two computer modules, just two Raspberry Pis, was actually quite useful as I became frustrated with just using one. So I just wanted to say thanks. Oh, I went, I, I've forgotten the context, but that's, um, yeah, I went through a year of Raspberry Pi development. <laughs> there were a lot of lessons learned. I can't remember your application. It was, but... it was just, uh, we're just using uh, like electromagnetic sensing and then spectrometer sensing. And, uh, the, the two were not playing nicely on one OS. And so we split it up into two OSs, you know, library conflicts and stuff. And so now we're just using uh, communication channels to pass the data back and forth. But it was like such, especially the compute module four is very tiny, but, uh, uh -huh. Hi Jeff. How are you? Thank you for coming. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hello. We were already chatting before this about already things we want to ask you. So. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad you came. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Yeah, don't be thrown off with an astrocyte question. I'm dying to ask. <laughs> That's fine. I love astrocytes. There's not a whole, not a whole lot of astrocytes in this study, though. <clears throat> Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. 
yeah um i hope you you know making the account and stuff didn't make any issues did you did you get to use it a little bit or is it the first time like this you... is the this is the first time great you're doing great the unmute works everything sometimes it's kind of buggy like the first time you log into the app for whatever reason for a while it was like problematic for people to unmute and hear everyone but uh, that's worked out now because you know and if you have if you have reception issues uh turning off wi-fi sometimes helps uh, and uh, headsets do really badly on this platform so if you use a headset it sounds like you're in a small tiny sinking submarine for whatever reason no i'm not using a headset right now i'm afraid i'm gonna just plug my phone in i'm afraid i'm gonna run out of charge oh it is a yeah clubhouse eats up batteries like crazy like you got if you're on clubhouse for more than once a day you kind of have to recharge your phone yeah. <laughs> so can you all hear me okay yep yeah okay just getting settled so the uh the PDF that I sent you, Katarina, is it departs a little bit. It's it breaks up kind of what we did for the paper into smaller bits and hopefully into more sort of comprehensible kind of bits of information. I hope that's okay. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> yeah, it would be. Great. I, I shared in the chat the paper and then the presentation is for everyone on the top of the room to uh, see. So, yeah, okay. people should have everything. <laughs> we'll start in like three minutes. Um, yeah, that's fine. So remind me what these uh, little icons are down at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> on the bottom, they are people. I mean, other other than your, uh, I see your images, but then at the way bottom, there's a chat, I guess. Is that what that is? Exactly. So um, on the left hand, if you click on it, um, there's like a speech bubble and the number three, and that's mm -hmm. the chat. So there people can ask questions or post um, links or comment on anything we're saying. So that's how you communicate with the whole room. And then there's another direct messaging option that is all the way on the top there's a little paper airplane uh, symbol oh, yeah. there you can, you can direct message me or anyone here it's the easiest to get those in the inbox when people follow each other it's uh if people don't follow each other it, it ends up in the request um section which i always forget to check so, <laughs> um, okay. and then, yeah, there's the share button. So again, all the way on the bottom, <laughs> there should be a number five with like an arrow up. So they can right. share right now that that's what I'm doing right now while I'm speaking, I'm sharing on Twitter that the room is started and you can copy the link and send it to people or invite people in share on clubhouse how great the room is <laughs> and um the the little um scissor symbol is you can make clips how long are the clips guys i never used it Do you, does anyone know 30 seconds 30 seconds 
And then you can share those clips on Twitter and so on. I see. And, yeah. And then next to the microphone button, like you're on stage, so it doesn't really, so you would see when people raise their hand. But if you would be uh, in the audience, there would be a little hand instead of the clipboard. And uh, you would, if you want to come up and speak, you would raise your hand and then we up here would either invite you up or not. So um, yeah, those should be all I the see. buttons. <laughs> so if somebody wants to ask a question, I'll see a little hand up here down there. Is that how it goes? Yeah, so let me make you moderator. So you will see it if people in the audience raise their hand. Um, you will see, yeah, there should be a little plus one uh, symbol on the clipboard. If you click then on it, you can see who it is. And then if people have a profile, like, uh, let me check your profile. Yeah, you, for example, you wouldn't be allowed up because... It's just there are a lot of fun <laughs> stuff out there. So, um, sorry, but that's um, alright. If there's like no link to like a Twitter or some information, bio information, or a bunch of followers, we just assume it's just a bot or just an account made to disrupt. Maybe some anti-scientist guy or something wanting to disrupt the room or something. So we would just you know, prevent from having that by just not letting people up. So, so it's really helpful for you to have a buy or a link to a Twitter or something like that. So people know you're an actual person with like more verified account type of thing. I see. <clears throat> yeah, I think we can start. Um, thank you so much for coming. And um, Welcome everyone to Science Society here um, tonight or wherever you are. Um, and um, of course, a special welcome here to Jeff. And before we start, let me introduce you um, to Jeff. Um, let me give you like just a short introduction. Uh, Dr. Jeff Tasker, and I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, Perfect. He, thank you. Um, he did uh, his PhD at the University of Bordeaux in France um, and um, he uh, received um, a, a bunch of awards and uh, one of them was an Outstanding Researcher Award at the Tulane School of Science and Engineering and the Professor of the Year Honors Program at Tulane University. And um, in his lab, he um, he's really interested about um, uh, studying emotional behaviors and the limbic circuit control and um, the synaptic dysregulation in this brain regions um, that uh, could cause um, depression, PTSD, and anxiety. And he uses um, patch clamp electrophysiology and uh, genetic manipulations um, and molecular biology to study those circuitries. Um, and um, also, um, he looks into the glia and the hypothalamus and amygdala, which 
uh, will make Serena really happy. <laughs> so, welcome, Jeff. And if it's okay with you, uh, Victoria usually asks a couple of interview questions before we start with the presentation. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Hello, Jeff. Thank you, Katarina, and welcome, Jeff. Science Society is so excited to have you here. So my questions are a bit more just of a personal nature to offer a more complete picture of the person behind the research as we present you to the room. So okay. my, que my question is, um, don't worry, it's not scary. <laughs> um, do you remember in your childhood perhaps a person or an event that initially pulled you towards science, maybe an inclination or towards science or scientific thought? Um, well, it's interesting because when I was younger, I didn't think I really had uh, an affinity for science. You know, you hear about brilliant scientists who are knew right off the bat since a very young age that they were drawn to science. I was more sort of a humanities person in high through high school. And, and it was really, um, it, uh, I was, I became interested in biology because I was interested in wildlife and sort of um, animal behavior. And then I, and in college, and that was actually in college when I started to develop that interest. And, um, you know, before that, I thought I was going to do English literature. I, I, I studied French and thought I might do languages. Um, but then I took a, a neuroscience course, a cellular neuroscience course um, in college. And that sort of got me hooked. And actually, that's, I'm sort of teaching the same course right now that I took as a, I think a sophomore. <clears throat> um, and, um, and then I just kind of followed that interest. I didn't know that I didn't necessarily have um, ambitions to become a scientist. Uh, I just was interested and, <clears throat> and actually I went to France to, um, to sort of take a break from school after I graduated. I, I'd gone as a, as an undergraduate on a year abroad <clears throat> and, um, had met a girl and then went back. Um, and then uh, as I was looking for a job to support myself, I sort of uh, looking for a job as a technician because I had a biology degree. Um, I kind of fell into this lab and then uh, started working on a project and that uh, turned into a, a degree. I stayed for the PhD after that. And so it just kind of followed my interests um, without uh, really knowing where they were going to take me. I don't know if that answers your question. It does, but what about the girl? Ah, <laughs> uh, the girl fell by the wayside. <laughs> okay, but we're thankful to her. Because look where you are now. And I, ha I have one more question. So you said that you're teaching the same course that you took, the neuroscience course. I'm, I'm curious how you're teaching it differently, if at all, apart from the science, maybe the, the current wisdom has changed, but I'm just curious what what's different about you teaching now? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't really think I am teaching it that differently from the way I learned it. Obviously, um, there is more known now. This was a long time ago. I won't even tell you how many, how many years ago. Um, <clears throat> but I'm sort of using the same uh, kind of general organization and the same emphases i think as to teach it because that's really what um and and really what got me hooked in uh, in onto neuroscience was um kind of the the uh the simplicity of 
how neurons generate electrical signals, which, you know, at, at the face of it, it would seem very complicated. And obviously the brain is very complicated, but it really boils down to very simple principles of ion movement, ion, you know, charged particle movement across the, uh, uh, the membrane to generate electrical signals. Um, and then, you know, release of neurotransmitters, chemicals that uh, bind to receptors and, and cause more ion movement. So uh, it was, um, it's, I try to try to boil it down to a very simple level and then kind of build that up. And I think that uh, build that up sort of uh, in, in complexity as we go. And I think that's kind of how it was taught to me and, and how I sort of got turned on by it. Right. Because what you're, what you're talking about is already magic. And so yeah. in its, yeah. in its yeah, purest simplicity, it's already magic. So right. I, I get what you're saying. Um, so then finally, from if we, if we go back to when you began working on that project, can you take us on a brief your path, share your brief path with us to the current research that you're doing today? Well, so I've, um, I've been interested in stress for a long time. And, and most of my career, I've been working in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus controls the pituitary gland, as well as the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, which is the sympathetic and parasympathetic um, systems. <clears throat> um, and uh, and then the neuroendocrine, so the pituitary, which is the neuroendocrine system, and there's a neuroendocrine response to stress, which is called the hypothalamic, or the, the axis, is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and that generates a hormone response. And we've, uh, we're very interested in how, we've been, I've been very interested in, my lab's been very interested in how that um, system gets activated, under what conditions, um, and there's feedback regulation by stress hormones back onto the system to shut it down. And we've been interested and worked for a long time on sort of molecular, cellular molecular mechanisms of how that, that negative feedback occurs uh, through the actions of a steroid hormone, uh, corticosteroid or glucocorticoids. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I guess, <clears throat> the uh, NIH decided it wasn't so interested in, I, I, got, I had just gotten a grant, but my program officer said um, that she didn't think we were, they were gonna fund that anymore after this round. So I had a grant for five years that they weren't gonna uh, refund that after that, uh, that particular round because they weren't so interested in the hypothalamus, they were more interested in, and, and the, uh, what we call the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. They were more interested in the amygdala, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, areas of the limbic system that are that kind of generate, um, you know, mental health disorders. And <clears throat> so I had to sort of um, think about uh, redirect my works while maintaining my interest and focus in stress. And so that's when we started working in the in the amygdala. And norepinephrine or noradrenaline is a is a stress signal. It's a stress hormone as well as a neurotransmitter. Uh, and we've been studying that for a while in the hypothalamus and, um, and now, uh, now in the amygdala, just because I think that a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, sort of development in the future is going to be, is going to revolve around neuromodulators and, and not so much the uh, fast 
excitation, fast inhibition um, that's mediated by the by the circuits, but by the modulation of those circuits by serotonin, norepinephrine, acetylcholine peptides, um, and so uh, and norepinephrine is like a primary stress um, neurotransmitter uh, that is a neuromodulator, and so we became interested in in what norepinephrine is doing to these circuits in the amygdala as well as in the in the hypothalamus, and um, and then I, I, I got lucky and got a very good student who just sort of took off in this area. And a lot of this is really Shin Fu, who's a, um, the first author of that paper. Um, a lot of it is really his, his doing. <clears throat> so that's where we are now. Thank you. I, I just hope you know how much we appreciate all of the information and, and all of the detail that you're sharing in here, it, it just, it helps, um, it just opens up what you've done in a more organic sense to maybe go through the path with you. And it's, yeah. it's also just absolutely fascinating. So thank you. And um, even though Katarina has made you a moderator and has given you all the powers to bring people up and, and things like that, um, it's our intention that you can relax and deliver your talk and let us take care of things like that. And if you'd like to have your Q&A following your talk, that's great. And if you would like to have a Q&A driving your talk along, that's up to you too. And we can also share you whatever questions friends are kind enough to put in the chat. So at well, this point, yeah. I'm open to anything. Actually, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, stop and answer questions. I, and actually, I'd almost prefer it that way because what I, I really didn't know how to structure this talk. This is the first time I've ever done something like this. So it may, I'm, a, I'm worried that it might be too, too seminar-like, too, not uh, uh, too formal. I'm hoping that, so if anybody wants to interrupt me and tell me to relax, that's fine. <laughs> or just um, answer a question. I'm happy with that. Well, thank you. We can't wait and uh, we'll do our best uh, at the relaxing part. So enjoy your talk and you have the floor. So I'm going to open this up. Is that what, uh, do I open it up to everybody? Everybody now? is, is able to click on it unless, yes, if there's something that you need to do to, uh, to allow access, then yes, please do that. Otherwise, um, I'm just looking at the link myself and uh, it looks like it's open. So we can follow along and you can say, okay, next slide or, or page three or whatever, however you'd like to do that. And thank you for taking a chance on us and, and making us your first place that you're giving this sort of discussion. Sure, my pleasure. So um, I'm not controlling anybody else's screen at this point. That's, That's correct. True. Yes, we're all, got yep. you can just, we're good. Okay, so I'm just gonna start talking about the work, I'm trying to set up the, a little bit of background. Um, so, you know, ultimately, well, originally we were interested in how fear memories are formed, and and you know, ultimately we're we're sort of moving towards uh, pathologies of uh, fear memory formation that can cause things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a situation where you, um, amongst other things. Uh, you know, there are several different symptoms, but one of the things is you have a hard time sort of suppressing the traumatic, uh, the memories of the traumatic event. Whereas, you know, 80% of people go through a traumatic event, come out of it, 
and can can let it go eventually and 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 um, not develop PTSD. There's 20% or so people who can't actually do that. And so, um, and that traumatic event is, is hard to dispel. Um, so we're sort of working towards that. This is not, um, that's sort of in the future, but this is, um, this paper sort of builds towards that. So we're looking at uh, the control of fear learning <clears throat> by neuromodulation in general, but really we started out by looking at the effects of norepinephrine. So if we just go to the first slide, um, <clears throat> fear, so it, associated with fear learning, I mean, fear uh, learning or fear memories are formed as um, associative memories, sort of Pavlovian associative learning. <clears throat> so, uh, a sensory cue <clears throat> and, then a, um, and then some unpleasant event and that <clears throat> that sensory cue can then um, evoke that uh, unpleasant event as a as a memory. And, and actually, that um, unpleasant event um, is unpleasant because there's emotion involved <clears throat> involved in that, um, and there's a an emotional salience. <clears throat> and so, uh, one of the hypotheses that we have is that norepinephrine, for example, uh, a, the stress neurotransmitter. Um, sort of bestows emotional salience onto um, environmental stimuli to give them uh, that sort of uh, impact. <clears throat> so um, if we go on to the, so we're looking at um, fear as an emotional state, <clears throat> um, and there's a, several different things that happen, sympathetic activation, obviously the fight or flight, but also release of stress hormones, and then behavioral responses like um, a freezing or a flight, a startle response, and, and these, um, these are sort of normal behaviors, but they become pathological under conditions of, of traumatic stress and PTSD. Um, so, uh, and when that becomes pathological, you, that uh, uh, or becomes dysregulated, you develop things like generalized anxiety disorder, phobias, and PTSD. <clears throat> so if we just go on to the next slide, the amygdala and associative fear learning, <clears throat> Um, the amygdala is really like a, a hub for emotions. And it's not just negative emotions, it's both positive and negative emotions. And the amygdala, <clears throat> now it's part of a, a sort of a network, a distributed network in embedded in what we call the limbic system, which is kind of your affective emotional system. <clears throat> um, and down in the lower right, it shows uh, the uh, basal lateral amygdala, the BLA, talking to the prefrontal cortex and then the prefrontal cortex talking back and then the ventral hippocampus, uh, VHC, talking to uh, both. And this, this is sort of a, obviously an oversimplified um, kind of rendition of that circuit, of that system. But this sort of sums up um, uh, sort of the, the basics of, a, of the fear circuit <clears throat> um, with the amygdala really at the... Um, at a sort of a core position in that uh, in that circuit. Now you can see um, in the amygdala in that middle section. So the amygdala is shown in cross section, uh, sort of half the brain on the left, and it's blown up in the middle, and then um, diagrammed out, or some of the subnuclei within the amygdala um, in the, the sort of right middle image, <clears throat> with glutamatergic being excitatory and GABAergic circuits being inhibitory signals. You can see the arrows, uh, the, these subnuclei are talking to each other. 
Uh, and the, the part that we're uh, really focusing on is that is labeled with B, also known as um, the basal lateral amygdala, and below it's labeled as BLA. Um, and that's where we're focusing our work. And you can see on the right in that little uh, sort of cartoon with a, an electrode um, on a cell, that's where we're doing our recordings when we do um, our electrophysiology. <clears throat> so in the next slide, just looks at sort of the timing of, of the stress response and in, the, in terms of the hormones that are released, the, the signals that are released. So you have the stressful event that occurs at time zero and the, and the first real signal, the first chemical signal is uh, noradrenaline. That's the red peak. Noradrenaline, which is also norepinephrine, for whatever reason, the Europeans refer to it as noradrenaline. The uh, Americans refer to it as norepinephrine. Um, it's related to uh, adrenaline and epinephrine, which are very, um, you know, very similar in structure, and they use the same uh, receptors, actually. So, but so the the first wave in the brain, and the first signal or part of the first wave is this norepinephrine or noradrenaline signal. So. That's what we're interested in as, as that's kind of a driving sort of um, excitation of this of the stress response. And we think that that's actually sort of giving the signal an emotional content and emotional salience through the actions of norepinephrine. <clears throat> so if uh, in the next slide, you see sort of a pretty picture of the noradrenergic projection. So these over in the sort of lower right <clears throat> or middle right, you see all the cell bodies where these norepinephrine producing cells reside in what's called the locus ceruleus. And then they send their axons out to absolutely the entire brain. I mean, it's a, what we call a diffuse projection. <clears throat> and so norepinephrine or noradrenaline is influencing the entire brain and, and different parts of the brain and under different conditions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so we're looking, I think it's in the red projection. I'm not quite sure that red um, <clears throat> Uh, circuit there is probably uh, towards the uh, the amygdala. <clears throat> so we're looking at that noradrenergic projection to the amygdala and what that's doing to the amygdala circuits. So if you go on to the next slide, um, with uh, the basolateral amygdala shown in the upper right, kind of, with the blue triangles and the green circles, and it's what we refer to as a cortical-like structure. In other words, the cell types um, in this, even though it's a subcortical structure, it's below the cortex, it's lower down in the brain. It kind of resides in your, in your, uh, below your temporal lobe. <clears throat> um, it, it, it has a very cortical-like structure with about 80% of the neurons um, being what we call principal neurons. And these are the main output cells of that structure. These are the cells that are that are going to talk to other parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, as well as other parts of the, of the amygdala and also uh, um, other parts of the brain. And then 20% um, of those cells, of the total number of cells, now we're referring to just the neurons. You have to imagine that um, there are at least this many, if not twice as many um, glial cells, including astrocytes, intermingled amongst these cells. <clears throat> but about 20% of the neurons are these inhibitory interneurons. <clears throat> now, and down below, it shows the, um, the uh, principal cell, which uh, is labeled, the, the soma of the principal cells is labeled. That's a pyramidal-like neuron, and actually this is a schematic of the hippocampus where these pyramidal neurons reside. But again, the basal lateral amygdala is very similar. 
And these are the output cells. These are excitatory neurons that project elsewhere that send their electrical discharges and, and activate and recruit other cells into, into a response. And then there are the inhibitory cells, and they're sort of they're a bunch of different uh, subtypes of inhibitory interneurons. Um, but we've sort of classified them into two, two main classes, the dendritic cells and the perisomatic cells. So the dendritic cells with their tufted axons in red there at the top, and the perisomatic cells with their basket-like like, uh, axons in green to the lower right. Now, <clears throat> the perisomatic cells are referred to as perisomatic because if you imagine that superimposed on that uh, blue soma, on that blue uh, neuron to the left, it forms a basket around the soma. These, this axonal projection uh, forms a basket around the soma and really surrounds the soma and sort of what we call the proximal dendrites, the, the near-end processes of that cell. Whereas the dendritic um, interneurons, projecting interneurons, they project out to the, the sort of distal parts of the dendrites. And they have very different functions. The perisomatic cells, also referred to as basket cells because of that basket kind of we that woven basket formation of, of axons. <clears throat> They're, uh, they have a very strong influence because uh, it's at the soma where this basket of, of um, axonal projections is formed, where the, um, the excitatory cell generates its electrical discharge to send out to and send downstream to uh, other neurons. So um, the perisomatic cell shuts that down, inhibits that activity. <clears throat> um, and so those perisomatic cells are what we're focusing on. And they're really kind of two flavors, two subtypes. And again, I'm simplifying this, but... <clears throat> Um, but this is pretty pretty close, um, and you can see that under the perisomatic on the left, the description, PV positive and CCK positive are the two types. <clears throat> PV that stands for parvalbumin cells, and if you looked at the that the title of the paper, that's in the I believe that's in the paper <clears throat> title, although it may not be. I'm thinking back, but that's the um, the the sort of focus. That cell type is the focus of that paper. And then um, the CCK positive, CCK that stands for cholecystokinin, which is a, a peptide. Now, it's not important. Uh, parvalbumin, for example, is a calcium binding protein. It's not important what that does. It, it, in this particular context, um, it is important what that does. But in this context it's, context, it's not. It is just a marker for one of the two subtypes of perisomatic interneurons. And so we have PV neurons, parvalbumin neurons, and CCK neurons. And they um, were looking at their response to norepinephrine and, and how uh, neuromodulation uh, changes their inputs to, the, um, to the, the principal cells. All right, so the next slide, just a sort of a schematic of that with the, uh, the two main perisomatic inhibitory interneurons, or the basket cells, with the CCK neuron on the left in purple and the parvalbumin neuron on the right in green. <clears throat> and you can see they project to the, the principal cell in the middle, the pyramidal cell, the triangular uh, cell, and form synapses. These are inhibitory synapses on the cell body, on the soma <clears throat> um, of those cells. Some, uh, sometimes they're uh, sort of out a little bit in the dendrites, but very close into the soma. <clears throat> um, and these cells have very different activities, and but they're both having sort of a similar function. Their job is to shut those uh, uh, principal cells down and, and prevent them from 
generating their electrical discharges and talking to downstream cells um, um, from those uh, principal neurons. So we're looking at how norepinephrine <clears throat> Uh, that acts at uh, those CCK neurons and PV neurons can influence their, um, their uh, inputs into these uh, principal cells. <clears throat> so the next slide just talks a little bit about the, uh, or shows kind of schematically our approach. Now, this is one of the main approaches, and that is an electrophysiology approach. In the lower left, it says patch clamp electrophysiology in brain slices. So we take and this, um, this study was done exclusively in mice. We're, we also work with some rats. Um, you take a, a, a slice of the brain, in this case, the, <clears throat> a slice of the amygdala, um, put it in a dish, and you can keep it alive for, <clears throat> and this is about a three or 400 micrometer thick slice, so not quite a half a, half a millimeter. <clears throat> uh, and you can, so it has its intact circuitry, at least at, at a local level. Um, and you can keep that alive for the day and, um, and study the electrical signaling within that slice. And you can see that on the bottom there uh, in the monitor, <clears throat> if we're looking at synaptic, uh, we're looking at synaptic circuits. So uh, the postsynaptic neuron <clears throat> is the one we're recording from with the electrode sticking out of it. And the presynaptic neuron just above it is talking to that postsynaptic neuron by releasing this little cloud of neurotransmitter <clears throat> that activates receptors and opens ion channels and triggers, generates uh, electrical signals. And that's what you're seeing in the monitor. Each one of those little downward going spikes in the, um, in the, uh, the trace is what we call uh, a postsynaptic current. And in this case, we're looking at inhibitory synapses, inhibitory circuits these PV neuron inputs and the CCK neuron inputs to that principal neuron, the postsynaptic neuron. So those would be inhibitory postsynaptic currents. And that neurotransmitter is GABA that's causing those, those currents. So if we go on to the next slide, actually, this is just pretty much a reiteration. This, this slide was animated just to show the, that um, those signals a little bit better, those inhibitory postsynaptic currents. You can see on the right uh, a, one of the principal neurons that's been filled with a, just a, a dye that's uh, labeled black, so you can sort of see the shape with the dendrites of that neuron. So if we go on to the next slide, um, norepinephrine is a neuromodulator. <clears throat> and uh, neuromodulators act through what we call G-protein-coupled uh, receptors, GPCRs. They're in the middle. And there are three different subtypes of G-protein-coupled receptors. This gets into the biochemistry. It's really not that germane to, to what we're going to talk about, except that <clears throat> there's, uh, we're going to focus on one of those G-protein-coupled receptors because that's the main, that G-protein, which is a biochemical signal inside the cell, is hooked up to the norepinephrine receptor that we are, um, that, that are on, that is on these, uh, these PV and CCK interneurons. <clears throat> so, we, and as I mentioned, that uh, activation of these receptors, these G-protein coupled receptors, uh, causes a neuromodulatory signal in the postsynaptic cell, in the principal cell, that we think is signaling emotional content or, or generating an emotional content 
to that um, to that circuit. And so our uh, what we wanted to do was find the role of neuromodulatory activation of these perisomatic interneurons in gating the the uh, neural activity of the basal lateral amygdala um, in in its role in fear learning. <clears throat> okay, so here and you're going to have to stop me if this gets to be um, too much too complicated or if it's it's incomprehensible and I apologize in advance. It gets pretty complicated. So what we're seeing is we're recording on the left just in that schematic we're recording from one of these principal cells in the basal lateral amygdala and then we're applying norepinephrine just in the dish. We're just um, this is in a um, in a dish. There's a perfusion system. Our brain slice sitting at the bottom and we're recording from a single neuron within that brain slice and we apply norepinephrine and you can see the response on the right the the red bar uh, designates the amount of time that norepinephrine was applied it was applied for five minutes and the black trace is the recording and you can see each of the each each of the downward um, uh, events the downward spikes is a an inhibitory postsynaptic current so an a, an event that's generated by the release of neurotransmitter by the signal being transmitted from one of these inhibitory interneurons. And you can see there's a very sort of stereotypic pattern that I've kind of designated with blue and green um, kind of bars <clears throat> where it starts out with a sort of a, a big barrage of these of these events and they're blown up. There's, there's an expanded trace on the bottom that's um, that's labeled type one. You can see that <clears throat> it's a sort of a very regular pattern that turns on and then it turns off, and then it's followed very quickly by the type two response, which is a repetitive bursting response of inhibitory postsynaptic currents. And these happen every thirty seconds or so. <clears throat> Actually, this one looks almost like it's uh, nearly a minute, so it's probably about forty or forty-five seconds. Um, you get another one of these bursts of, of inhibitory postsynaptic currents um, that we're referring to as a type 2 um, IPSC burst. <clears throat> IPSC that stands for inhibitory postsynaptic currents. So we get, uh, in response to norepinephrine, we get this sort of stereotyped uh, response with a, a type 1 burst that's, the response starts out with this big barrage of IPSCs that's a type 1 burst. And it's followed very quickly by a repetitive type two bursting every 30 to, to 40 or 50 seconds. <clears throat> um, and we've uh, we've gone on, and I'll show this in uh, in the next slides to show in the bottom right that this is norepinephrine activating two different interneurons, the CCK and the PV neurons, that then project to the principal neuron and cause the principal neuron to generate these bursts of inhibitory postsynaptic currents. <clears throat> okay, any questions about that? So I'm going to go on to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> so so what, you yeah. induce this with dreads, right? The, the, like the activation of the interneurons? Yes. So norepinephrine is activating these interneurons and actually um, it's blocked by TTX. That's shown on the left. That's maybe a, a little bit more information than you than you need, but um, it just shows that those neurons are generating. So the response is blocked. So it goes back down to 100% of baseline. So no no response in the presence of tetrodotoxin, which blocks action potentials. 
blocks electrical discharges. So if you block electrical discharges, you block this effect of norepinephrine. In other words, the norepinephrine is, is activating, exciting these uh, inhibitory interneurons, and they're um, projecting to the principal cell and uh, generating these bursts of inhibitory postsynaptic currents. Now, these are inhibitory signals, so this should shut that uh, principal neuron down, right, um, in a bursting pattern. <clears throat> Um, and we're going to go into that a little bit more when we start talking about oscillations. And um, so what was the norepinephrine concentration? Did you try different ones or uh, one fixed one? It was, well, so most of these, most of what I'm going to show is with 100 micromolar, but we, we did a, a dose response. It's got a, um, a threshold of about 20 micromolar, um, and it's maximum at about 100 micromolar. Okay, because... Um, <clears throat> You know, I did some norepinephrine work back in time, and I, you, there was also later on in the literature that if you go under 20, you see kind of an opposite effect sometimes, especially on LTP and stuff. So, yeah, I was just thinking if you did the doses once under 20 to look further into this, you know, it, norepinephrine can have a very low concentration, like an opposite effect. Right. So we, we didn't actually see anything at 10 micromolar and started to, in some of the cells, like in about 20% of the cells, we saw this, a similar activity uh, sort of emerge at 20 micromolar. <clears throat> at 50 micromolar, it was probably more like 50 or 60% of the cells. And, and at 100 micromolar, there was 100% of the cells or almost 100% of the cells that show this response. But um, <clears throat> what what happens with norepinephrine is norepinephrine, like most neurotransmitters, has multiple receptors. <clears throat> and if you're applying norepinephrine in your Petri dish, for example, in the bath, you're hitting all those receptors. And different cells have different types of adrenergic receptors, and the different adrenergic receptors are coupled to different G proteins and trigger different responses. So it's, it gets very complicated unless you can sort of tease out, um, you know, the different using pharmacology as well as, you know, electrophysiology, <clears throat> the different receptors uh, and the different locations on, on, uh, of those receptors on, on different cell types. In this particular case, we're pretty sure that those interneurons have what are called alpha-1 receptors, and it's a particular subtype of alpha-1 receptor, alpha-1A receptors, and not, the, um, and not the beta receptors. We've all heard of beta blockers. Beta blockers uh, actually um, <clears throat> target the beta adrenergic receptors, and those receptors have a completely different effect. The principal neurons do have uh, actually alpha-1 and beta receptors as well, but this particular, um, we're focusing on this particular uh, response that's due to activation of alpha-1 receptors on the, um, the inhibitory interneurons, and that's generating this, um, this sort of bursting pattern of inhibitory inputs to the principal neurons. Yeah, thank you. Did, did you ever try to, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Did you ever try to check on different GABA receptors, like how they are modulated 
by norepinephrine? Like, did you ever try that? Um, the protein couple, like if they kind of modulate also the response of receptor. Yeah. We don't really have, uh, but this analysis allows us to determine whether norepinephrine is acting at the receptor on the postsynaptic membrane. <clears throat> if it's acting at the receptor, either, you know, through an allosteric sort of modulatory site on the receptor itself, or by, you know, phosphorylation or dephosphorylation of the receptor and, and, and modifying its activity through a biochemical activation, we can tell uh, whether that the effect of the drug, norepinephrine, is postsynaptic or presynaptic. Uh, and in this particular case, it's presynaptic. So it's upstream of that principal neuron. It's up in the interneurons. And the fact that it was so it's not affecting the, the, the synaptic currents, the GABA currents, um, either their amplitude or their, their waveform, which is what you would see if it was actually affecting the, the receptors themselves. It's affecting the release of GABA, so a presynaptic effect. And that's blocked by TTX, uh, tetrodotoxin. So we know that that is through activation of those upstream interneurons, action potential generation in those neurons. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm gonna go on to slide 12, which is really um, just shows that <clears throat> these, here we have two cells being recorded in our little schematic up in the upper left. You can see two basal lateral amygdala neurons recorded simultaneously. And you can see very similar responses in each of those with a type one burst or two, actually two type one bursts in this case, um, in the blue cell and in the uh, green cell, and then uh, some repetitive type two bursts, not quite as stereotypic as we saw in the last cell. Um, but what's uh, the take home message here is that we're getting um, the same activity in two different cells. So that means that this, um, this, these inhibitory bursts of, of synaptic activity are synchronized in uh, multiple uh, cells. So that the fact that they're synchronized means that they can coordinate activity in these principal neurons in a, in a population of these principal neurons. <clears throat> so if we go on to the next slide, um, so we have uh, two bursting activities. Um, the thinking is that that's caused by um, the two different types of uh, interneurons, the CCK neurons and the PV neurons, and we can study that. And I don't know that I necessarily have to go into detail here because I've already told you the, the punchline, and that is we had to actually determine whether those two bursting activities were mediated by two different types of interneurons, upstream interneurons, which is what we did using uh, the different calcium channels and CB1 receptors um, different calcium channels of, of the two interneurons and the fact that the CCK neurons express CB1 receptors at their terminal. CB1 receptors that are cannabinoid receptors that respond to endogenous uh, cannabinoids, which are neurotransmitters. And the reason that we respond to, to cannabis is because we have CB1 receptors in our circuits. And these CCK neurons are... Um, particular uh, because they are express these CB1 neurons so that we can manipulate their activity by activating 
those receptors. And so if I go on to the, whereas the PV neurons have no CB1 receptors and different uh, types of calcium channels. So uh, I'm not going to belabor this because it gets pharmacological and <clears throat> gets complicated, but the, the uh, end result was we were dissociating these two types of bursts and attributing them to the two um, different types of uh, interneurons, basket cells, the CCK and PV neurons, just by blocking, uh, in this case, uh, the, ag the omega agatoxin blocks the PQ type calcium channel and that blocks the type two burst. So the repetitive bursts, you can see in the middle trace, those repetitive bursts are gone uh, in response to norepinephrine. <clears throat> and then um, CB1 receptors that blocks the type one burst. Uh, um, when uh, in the lower trace, when uh, it's called WIN55212, which is a, uh, a, can, a cannabinoid-like molecule that activates CB1 receptors, um, and that uh, inhibits the type 1 burst. And then we went on to do to test the other um, calcium channel blocker, omega conotoxin, that blocks the type 1 burst in the middle um, trace there, <clears throat> whereas WIN does not and, and leaves the type 2 burst, the repetitive bursting, <clears throat> And then uh, wind does not block the uh, type 2 burst. The end result, if we go on to the next slide, just to attribute the type 1 burst to CCK interneurons, you can see on the lower, uh, in the schematic, um, at the bottom of the, of the slide, CCK neurons on the left, which generate the type 1 burst, and the parvalbumin interneurons on the right that generate the type 2, the repetitive type 2 bursting. <clears throat> um, Okay, so on to the next slide. <clears throat> um, and this is more pharmacology uh, to determine, uh, as I've already mentioned, that these are alpha-1 receptors that are being activated. Um, we just used a, um, an alpha-1 uh, specific antagonist, that WB4101 compound that completely blocked all the bursting uh, activity by the... Um, <clears throat> by norepinephrine, you can see that's gone. And in trace number two, we used a, an agonist that's selective for the alpha-1 uh, subtype of uh, adrenergic receptor, and that mimics the effect of norepinephrine on, um, uh, to generate uh, type 1 and type 2 bursts. So these, um, this bursting activity, this activation of the PV neurons and CCK neurons is through activation, norepinephrine activation of alpha-1 receptors. <clears throat> um, now, alpha-1 receptors are, so there are diff three different types of, uh, if I go back, I'm going to, uh, so we're still on slide 17. There are three different groups of adrenergic receptors. Alpha-1 receptors in blue on the left, alpha-2 receptors in red in the middle, and beta receptors in green on the right. And they're coupled to different G proteins. Uh, alpha-1 receptors on the left to GQ. That's, uh, you can barely read it, but it's GQ11. It's a subtype of G protein. Alpha-2 to GIO. And alpha and beta receptors to GS. Um, so alpha-1 receptors on the left, they're coupled to GQ, uh, GQ um, G proteins. So they are what we call a GQ-coupled uh, receptor. <clears throat> and that couples downstream to different signaling molecules, including um, uh, release of calcium inside the cell. 
So, but we can use that information, the fact that it's a GQ coupled receptor now, uh, if we go on to uh, slide 18, to use uh, a new technology that's been out for the last uh, a few years called um, chemogenetics or pharmacogenetics. <clears throat> so there are designer receptors that, um, and actually these are our receptors, these are muscarinic cholinergic receptors that have been modified so that they're not no longer activated by acetylcholine and they're only activated by a designer drug. So these are referred to as DREADS, D-R-E-A-D-D, which stands for designer receptor uh, exclusively activated by designer drugs, which is kind of a mouthful. <clears throat> so you can gen genetically express by transducing, by transfecting these cells, genetically express this designer receptor, and that's what we see in the middle, that HM3DGQ in the red. <clears throat> um, that's a GQ-coupled receptor that we're expressing, and we can express it in different subtypes of cells. In this particular case, um, I, don't, I don't know if you know, if you've heard of this Cree recombinase um, technology, but by... <clears throat> Uh, it's going to get very complicated very quickly, but we can express by expressing this enzyme in the PV neurons. So in B on the left, uh, this is a mouse that has cre this enzyme expressed in all its parvalbumin interneurons throughout the brain. And by injecting a virus, <clears throat> which is shown at least schematically in A, that has that HM3D designer receptor, which is a GQ-coupled receptor, um, and we can infect all the cells, but, that, um, but it's only expressed in the cells that express the Cree recombinase, because in order to get, it, uh, to get expression to, to occur, you need that, the activation by that enzyme. So we're expressing this GQ-coupled designer receptor in just the parvalbumin neurons. So now we've got a, a situation, and that's shown in the, in the uh, red um, photograph in the middle. <clears throat> we've got the situation where we have this designer uh, receptor um, ex that's exclusively um, expressed in parvalbumin neurons. And if we apply the designer drug that activates that receptor, we should activate only those uh, parvalbumin neurons. And that's what's shown in D. CNO is this designer drug. It's clozapine N oxide is the drug. Uh, and you can see that we get an activation of the type 2 uh, parvalbumin-like burrs shown in D, and they're kind of blown up in an expanded uh, form uh, below in the green and sort of pink uh, blocks. <clears throat> So now we're, act, we're able to activate those par, the, the same pathway that norepinephrine activates in the parvalbumin neurons by this designer drug, <clears throat> which will allow us to now manipulate um, in vivo, go into these um, by applying this drug, be able to actually activate those cells exclusively in the whole animal. So if we go on to the next slide, uh, this just shows the, uh, it's another illustration that the parvalbumin neurons, uh, so the recording, we're doing a dual recording. 
in uh, PV, the parvalbumin neurons in red, and then the principal neurons in gray in the lower left. The parvalbumin neurons, which are expressing this HM3D GQ receptor, <clears throat> coupled receptor. Um, and you can see that CNO, <clears throat> which actually I forgot to put in the CNO, but this is in the presence of CNO, is activating the, the parvalbumin neurons in the, um, in the middle trace up top, the uh, compressed trace, um, and, um, <clears throat> and activating uh, those IPSC type 2 bursts shown in the blue squares uh, that are blown up in an expanded trace below the blue blocks. So we are now act, uh, activating just the parvalbumin neurons and getting the type 2 bursts <clears throat> in the parvalbumin neurons. Um, so if you go on to uh, the next slide, which is slide 20, that has the characteristic. Um, so in A, that parvalbumin, that's a parvalbumin neuron we're recording. Actually, it's, it's an extracellular recording. We're recording spikes, action potential. So these are the electrical discharges. You can see it's, it's activated at a fairly high frequency that's blown up just underneath A. Um, and then we apply the, the CNO at the beginning of that red uh, bar across the top. <clears throat> and you can see that that uh, tonic activity, that sort of regular high frequency um, activity, gets turned into a bursting activity, the type 2 bursting activity. <clears throat> so it transitions from a, uh, a, reg uh, a continuous ongoing activity into this intermittent oscillatory activity. And in B, in seven different cells, shown e each of those black bars on the left is actually a compressed version of all those action potentials being activated. And then you go to the right in cell number one. When you apply CNO, it goes into a, a bursting activity with that particular pattern. In cell number two, again, a bursting activity with a different pattern. And the point here is that we're, um, we're causing these cells to transition out of a regular tonic uh, continuous activation to a, an intermittent oscillatory bursting activity. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Have I lost everybody? Sorry <laughs> if I have. <clears throat> um, I guess the, uh, the, the bottom line is that we're actually inducing an oscillatory activity uh, electrical activity in these parvalbumin neurons. And if we go on to the next slide, what that does to the principal neurons is also uh, um, induce an oscillatory activity and take the, the principal neurons from a, so before the CNO projection, uh, CNO application, a regular um, tonic activity that you can see below in just a, a, a roster plot of um, their ongoing activity in seven different cells, <clears throat> which is uh, a regular sort of uh, ongoing activity that's converted in CNO into, again, a, uh, more of an oscillatory activity. So again, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the take-home message is that we're transitioning this uh, electrical activity in the BLA from a, a, a tonic regular activity into a, a sporadic kind of oscillatory activity. And uh, these PV neurons, so I'm going um, now at, uh, in, uh, on slide 22. Uh, these PV neurons are responsible for generating gamma oscillations. 
And the way they do that, and you can see in the, um, the gamma oscillation, so gamma oscillations, this is a high frequency oscillation. It's from about 40 hertz to all the way up to 100 hertz. <clears throat> um, if you uh, record uh, the uh, activity of the brain activity with a, uh, an EEG recording, cortical activity, you have uh, different uh, sort of frequencies of oscillations, and they're doing these different frequencies of oscillations are based on populations of neurons all generating activity at the same time at that particular frequency. So in the case of the gamma oscillations, you have um, neurons that are activated at about anywhere from 40 to 100 hertz, but in populations. And below, we see a, a PV neuron recordings called cell attached, just looking at action potential activation those PV neurons are uh, generating action potentials uh, that is uh, synchronized, that's in harmony with that gamma oscillation. <clears throat> and these are actually responsible for driving uh, gamma oscillations in uh, populations of neurons in the cortex, but also in the, uh, in the basal lateral amygdala. So, <clears throat> We go on to the next slide. So we wanted to look at what uh, norepinephrine and this uh, GQ-coupled DREAD are doing to uh, gamma oscillations. <clears throat> so remember that the um, activation of the alpha-1 receptor by norepinephrine or of the GQ-coupled DREAD causes those PV neurons to go from a, a continuous activation into an oscillatory activation every 30 seconds or so and that that causes the principal neurons to go into an oscillatory um, activity as well. <clears throat> so if we, if we now, this is actually work uh, we did in, in collaboration with Jamie McGuire at Tufts University and her student, Eric Taboul. <clears throat> he was doing the, uh, these experiments in the whole animal now, <clears throat> looking at um, recordings of field potential, so uh, of population activity in the basal lateral amygdala, he also did the prefrontal cortex, um, but we're going to sort of focus mainly on the on the basal lateral amygdala, <clears throat> and um, using in this particular slide 23 uh, activation of uh, the GQ dread, but also of norepinephrine. You can see that in <clears throat> so the the experimental paradigm is shown in B. Um, he first, he does uh, recording. Now he's got an electrode in A. You can see the electrodes in the basal lateral amygdala, the red area of the brain. In this um, PV Cree, uh, this uh, Cree expressing uh, mouse where Cree is expressed in the parvalbumin neurons. And we've expressed this designer receptor exclusively in those parvalbumin neurons. <coughs> um, he applies saline first <coughs> and does his recording. <coughs> Uh, and then uh, next applies either saline or the, the designer drug to see what that activation of those GQ uh, receptors in the parvalbumin neurons does to the, the population activity. And that's shown in C. You can see that, um, <clears throat> uh, and actually D, it's actually easier to see if we concentrate on the gamma activation, and gamma can be divided into slow gamma, in C and D, and fast gamma in E and F. You can see that uh, the gamma um, in D, <clears throat> compared to saline, 
uh, activation of those um, PV neurons, the GQ in the PV neurons, uh, suppresses both the slow gamma in D and the, um, and the fast gamma in F in both the basal lateral amygdala and in the frontal cortex. So we're actually suppressing gamma uh, oscillations by activating these parvalbumin neurons. <clears throat> and we can do the same thing this, uh, in the next slide, which is actually even more complicated. But if you just look at C uh, and um, uh, if you look at C, it, we're getting the same effect by applying norepinephrine into, directly into the, uh, into the basal lateral amygdala. We suppress uh, the slow gamma in C, and I think it's the, um, in uh, E, D and E, it's the fast gamma in the basal lateral amygdala, and then in uh, F, G, H, and I, it's shown in the, in the, frontal, uh, the frontal cortex. The, um, the message being that we're, uh, by activating these um, adrenergic receptors or activating these G, uh, uh, GQ-coupled uh, designer receptors, we are suppressing uh, gamma oscillations in the, um, in the basal lateral amygdala as well as in the frontal cortex. So by suppressing that tonic ongoing activity and converting it into a, an oscillatory activity, um, that suppresses the gamma oscillations. So if we go on to the next slide, in, uh, so slide 25. <clears throat> now gamma, so what is, what's the significance of, of gamma oscillations? Now, Gamma oscillations are involved in, are thought to be involved in memory formation. They're, in fo they're thought to be involved in different sort of cognitive functions, but there happens to be a negative correlation between uh, gamma oscillations and uh, fear memory formation. So in this particular graph, it's the, uh, the gamma oscillation, the power of the gamma oscillation is shown on the x-axis. And then freezing, uh, the percent freezing, which is a, an index of fear learning, <clears throat> is shown on the, uh, on the x-axis. So gamma on the y-axis, uh, freezing and uh, fear learning on the x-axis. And you can see there's um, the stronger the gamma oscillation, the less freezing. So as we increase gamma, we decrease freezing, decrease fear memory. <clears throat> Um, so the gamma is actually inhibitory to uh, fear memory <clears throat> formation. So the question is, does this alpha-1 alpha receptor-dependent suppression of gamma oscillation enhance fear memory? So by suppressing gamma oscillation, are we actually increasing or enhancing fear memory? <clears throat> so if we go on to the next slide. Um, we have an alpha-1 uh, A adrenal receptor knockout mouse. It's a global knockout. So in uh, all the alpha-1 A receptors are knocked out in, throughout the brain. <clears throat> um, so we can't really focus uh, on the basal lateral amygdala so much. <clears throat> um, but as it turns out, these alpha-1, this alpha-1 A subtype of alpha-1 receptor is specific to GABA interneurons. So it's just expressed in the inhibitory interneurons. It's not expressed in the excitatory cells. So we can target that um, alpha-1 
and we can target those inhibitory interneurons pharmacologically by um, uh, alpha-1A uh, specific drugs. But now in order to specifically target the, um, the basal lateral amygdala, we've taken this global knockout and we're going to add back the alpha-1A receptor <clears throat> just uh, using a virus just to these, uh, to the interneurons in the basal lateral amygdala. And that's shown uh, in the next slide, in slide 27. <clears throat> um, so we're, uh, this is just showing that the uh, alpha-1A receptor is mainly in GABA neurons. <clears throat> uh, and this is all different types of GABA neurons shown with the GAD67. Uh, but it's also in the parvalbumin neurons shown below. <clears throat> and if we go on to the next slide, so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to test their, um, that fear memory formation and specifically fear memory um, consolidation <clears throat> in, um, in these uh, alpha-1 receptor knockout mice and see by adding back, back the alpha-1 receptor into the parvalbumin neurons or in the CCK neurons, seeing what that does to, uh, to the fear memory. <clears throat> so this is a, a classic Pav, uh, Pavlovian form of associative fear, <clears throat> or associative memory, this fear conditioning, where you uh, expose the animal. In this case, uh, we're exposing a mouse to a conditioned stimulus uh, CS, which is an auditory tone, just like Pavlov, uh, you know, rang a bell and, and, and his, uh, when he fed his, his dogs and they learned to associate the, um, uh, you know, the, the bell with the feeding and they would salivate. In this case, we're associating a, an auditory tone with a, a, an aversive stimulus, which is a foot shock. Um, shown in the middle box, <clears throat> and that's referred to as the unconditioned stimulus, or U.S. So the U.S. is associated with the, the auditory tone, the conditioned stimulus, the C.S., and the animal learns to associate, obviously, that, um, that auditory tone with uh, the aversive stimulus of the shock. And then when we come back the next day or, or, or days later in a different context, and apply the auditory tone. <clears throat> um, the peppermint just refers to it. There's a different odor in that in that box. Um, we get a freezing response or a, an aversive response, um, and that tells us that the animal remembers that um, that uh, sensory stimulus, the conditions, the the auditory tone, that cue. <clears throat> um, and so we can measure memory by the amount of freezing that that animal does um, in response to that auditory cue. So if we go on to the next slide, so we're taking our uh, alpha-1 receptor knockout mice, and this just shows that they're not responding to norepinephrine. So in the top trace, we get uh, norepinephrine. You can see norepinephrine has no, uh, no effect on the um, inhibitory postsynaptic currents in that cell. Whereas when we add back in the lower trace, if we add back through viral transduction, so we're injecting a virus that will actually introduce the alpha-1 receptor back into those just the PV neurons, the parvalbumin neurons, 
Um, and you can see in the lower trace, we recover the response to uh, norepinephrine. <clears throat> so, um, and we're going to see what adding the norep or adding back the alpha-1 receptor to these PV neurons does to um, the fear conditioning, the fear memory uh, in these animals. So if we go on to ne the next slide, which is slide 30, um, uh, the paradigm is shown up top. We're in, uh, doing our virus injection. You can see the, the, in the uh, photomicrograph on the left, the red stain is where the virus has been injected into the basolateral amygdala in the left and right side. <clears throat> and then we wait three weeks. <clears throat> and then we put the animal through this fear conditioning paradigm which is a series of um, auditory tones that are um, associated with uh, foot shock <clears throat> for, and there's uh, seven pairings. You can see seven pairings on, on the top of, of fear conditioning. <clears throat> and then we're going to come back the next day, 24 hours later, and just do the auditory tone. So five auditory tones <clears throat> without the foot shock and measure the amount of freezing. Um, so how much the animal remembers um, that uh, associative, um, the association between the auditory tone and the, and the foot shock. And we're going to activate in our experimental animals using the designer drug, CNO. So we're introducing the, the GQ-coupled uh, dread into the parvalbumin neurons, and then we activate those parvalbumin neurons by injecting CNO before the um, the, the uh, fear conditioning, and then again before the fear retrieval. <clears throat> and down below, you can see the the results of that ex of that experiment. Uh, in red, actually the controls are in blue. We have the um, alpha one receptor knockout, the ADRA one a knockout uh, with the, just the dye, the M-cherry, which is just a fluorescent dye in blue. And then in red, we have the um, ADR1A, the alpha-1 receptor knockout, um, and added uh, back alpha-1 receptors in the PV neurons in blue. I'm sorry, in red. And you can see that uh, if we look at the retrieval uh, part of the curve, so on day one, we have fear conditioning FC. They both, um, there's no statistically significant difference in their acquisition. So we're looking at percent freezing on the uh, y-axis. They both arrive at about 60, uh, 60 to 70% uh, freezing after um, the seven uh, pairings of, of the, the foot shock with the auditory cue. We come back the next day and just test them with the auditory cue. You can see that the, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, uh, controls with the, um, the in the alpha one knockouts, they do not remember that, so they they show very little freezing. But by adding back the, uh, the GQ, the alpha one receptor, I'm sorry, the alpha one receptor <clears throat> into the parvalbumin neurons, they actually um, recover, or they they actually remember uh, that conditioned uh, fear memory. And if we look on the right, we do the same thing now, except with um, instead of adding back the alpha-1 receptor, we've uh, added the uh, GQ designer um, receptor just to the parvalbumin neurons. You can see they, uh, in the fear, during the fear conditioning, they both acquire 
uh, in a similar fashion up to about 60 to 80 <clears> percent <throat> freezing. And then if we come back the next day to look at retrieval with just the auditory cue, again, the ones that have the, um, the GQ uh, coupled receptor, the designer receptor, um, remember better, they freeze more than the ones that, um, uh, that don't have that receptor. <clears throat> okay, and if we go on to the next slide. <clears throat> so what we think is happening, <coughs> And this was the um, sort of the, the end of the, the, the paper, <clears throat> is that by activating these GQ-coupled receptors, whether it be the alpha-1 receptor by norepinephrine or the GQ-coupled uh, designer receptor by the designer drug, specifically in the parvalbumin basket cells, the PVBC, uh, labeled PVBC here, um, <clears throat> That causes those cells to go from a tonic activ uh, activation, tonic activity, high frequency activation, to a bursting activity with a burst of, of action potentials every 30 seconds or so. <clears throat> and this uh, actually disrupts that tonic activation or tonic activity. And it's the tonic activity which is responsible for generating gamma oscillations. <clears throat> and by disrupting that uh, tonic activity, activity and making it go phasic. Um, we're disrupting the, uh, uh, the tonic output, the gamma output of the basal lateral amygdala, and that um, by suppressing gamma, that actually has a facilita uh, fac uh, facilitatory effect on fear memory. So it actually promotes fear memory um, formation. <clears throat> Now, if we go on to the next slide, we did the same things, uh, and this was actually, this is our work we're look, working on now, focusing on the, the other basket cell, the CCK neurons that generate the type 1 burst. Again, knocking out alpha receptors in, um, <clears throat> uh, completely uh, abolishes the effect of norepinephrine. So we're on slide 32, looking at the top trace, norepinephrine has no effect. If we add back the alpha-1 receptors now, specifically in the, in the CCK neurons, we get a type, two neuron, a type 2 burst of iPSCs shown in the bottom trace and blown up in the expanded trace below, um, and <clears throat> which is specific to the norepinephrine response in CCK neurons. If we go on to the next um, slide, slide 33, <clears throat> um, we did the same thing, uh, the same paradigm so in this case, we're uh, either adding back the alpha-1 receptor or the GQ-coupled DRED into the um, CCK neurons, and then coming back um, three weeks later and doing our fear conditioning with seven pairings of auditory cue with, with the foot shock, and then coming back the next day and looking at freezing, and then coming back the next day and looking at freezing again with just the cue the auditory cue without the foot shock <clears throat> to look at how much the animal remembers of that, um, of that uh, aversive uh, association. And you can see um, in the, uh, actually in D, <clears throat> um, we have the alpha-1 receptor knockout uh, animal uh, in the control without, with just a, a, a dye without adding back either GQ or the alpha-1 receptor in blue. 
and you can see that there's a, <clears throat> a certain uh, retrieval of the memory, um, about a 40% freezing rate in the blue traces in date on day two, where I'm looking at the at panel D. Um, whereas when we add back uh, uh, the alpha-1 receptor in CCK neurons, so the alpha-1 receptor that's going to be activated by norepinephrine, that actually suppresses the fear memory. <clears throat> so it's, it has an inhibitory effect on the fear memory retrieval on day two. And the same thing happens when we uh, in panel E when we add back or add the uh, GQ-coupled DRED specifically to the CCK neurons in red. You can see that, that on day two that suppresses the uh, fear memory retrieval. So unlike the PV neurons, where we, when we activated those with norepinephrine or the GQ um, the designer um, receptor, um, that actually facilitated fear memory. In this case, this is suppressing fear memory by activating the CCK neurons. So this actually has, if we go on to uh, slide uh, 34, so my next to last slide, <clears throat> that um, activation of those GQ-coupled receptors, whether it's the alpha-1 receptor or the, or the designer receptor, causes a type uh, 1 a burst, so a sort of a, a, a single burst. <clears throat> um, and then that, um, we think that that's actually through um, modulation of theta rhythms. I haven't shown that. But that actually has a suppressive effect on fear. So we're calling that anti-fear memory formation. And if we put them both together in the last slide, with the CCK neurons on the left and activating those uh, GQ-coupled receptors, uh, alpha-1 receptors in that case, and the PV neurons, uh, the alpha-1 receptors in the PV neurons on the right, <clears throat> uh, we get a type, uh, a type 1 type bursting uh, rhythmic activity in the CCK neurons and a repetitive bursting activity um, in the PV neurons. And the PV neurons are facilitating fear memory um, formation, whereas the CCK neurons are actually inhibiting fear memory formation. So that <clears throat> we have opposite effects of um, activation of these two interneurons on fear memory formation. Uh, and that's kind of everything. That's where we are right now. <clears throat> oh, thank you so much. Uh, oh, oh, did you want to say something? Sorry. No, that's um, a lot of information. It's throwing a lot of information at you. <clears throat> well, I just want to point out how, you know, how much work you just presented here. I want to make sure that everyone knows. Um, also, the methods, how really not easy they are. Like, this is a lot of um, work and very precise work and uh, very skilled work just electrophysiology by itself is like a humongous skill and now you know we add all these um uh, modulations um to it with precise injections for uh, chemogenetics and um you know modulating receptors in those brain regions and targeting the amygdala um very well it's like very hard because it's deep, it's very lateral. So um, yeah, it's it's a lot of work and it's it's an amazing work. So uh, thank you and congratulations on that. <laughs> thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, so so we're, we're hoping this actually leads to, we're gonna look at a, a traumatic stress model to see if uh, we have some preliminary data to suggest that that's actually disrupted, that, that 
traumatic, uh, traumatic stress exposure disrupts um, this bursting pattern of activation of these interneurons, that that, that might be a, a, a sort of a mechanism for a cellular mechanism for some of the pathology that's um, experienced in, in traumatic stress. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's the questions I had. Um, if you see maybe in, you know, in the Doos lab, at some point we did some, like a, a PhD student did uh, some work in like individual differences in rats. Mm -hmm. So do you expect maybe that there are like a, there's like a different balance between PV and CC? <clears throat> neurons in those areas that are more vulnerable? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. I do. I think that's, that is the case. So we think that the PV neurons are being affected by traumatic stress, maybe being desensitized to norepinephrine. <clears throat> um, and the, um, the CCK neurons, uh, not so much. We haven't seen an effect on, on their activation by norepinephrine. So, um, and the question is, how does, you know, how does not responding to norepinephrine, the PV, PV neurons not responding to norepinephrine, how is that actually leading to some of the sort of behavioral manifestations of, of traumatic stress, like whether it's inability to, to extinguish fear memory or, or, you know, flashbacks or intrusive thoughts. And we don't really know that yet, but that's kind of where we're going. Do you think that like cortisol levels combined because it's a more prolonged effect that could like uh, play into this? And do you think that maybe extreme release of norepinephrine could lead to like epigenetic changes? So there are maybe less receptors or, you know, less receptor expression or something like that. Well, that, that too is a very good question. So we have a parallel study going on in the, in the hypothalamus and actually uh, corticosteroids, glucocorticoids, cause desensitization of alpha-1 receptors in CRH neurons, which are kind of the neurons that are responsible for generating the stress neuroendocrine response. That, um, so exposure to high glucocorticoid um, actually causes um, these alpha-1 receptors to not be recycled to the membrane as they're being as they're going through sort of their normal cycling of being internalized and, and trafficked back to the membrane. So uh, and that that desensitizes um, those neurons to norepinephrine. So we're we're thinking that there might be some what of a similar kind of molecular mechanism here to desensitize these PV neurons maybe to uh, norepinephrine through the actions of glucocorticoids, but it could very well be that you know traumatic stress, which has a you know a huge um, I figure there's a, a huge uh, sort of release of, of stress hormones, whether it's norepinephrine, um, glucocorticoids, CRH, uh, at the time of the event, <clears throat> that that too could could lead to sort of downstream uh, changes in receptor trafficking or re receptor sensitivity through epigenetic changes possibly, although we're not going in that direction um, as much as we're looking at sort of um, changes in kind of receptor trafficking at this point, but <clears throat> it could very well be the case. Yeah, it would be interesting to just look at plain like methylation levels. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Maybe and then 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I want to give other people a chance to speak. I'm sorry, uh, but this is such an interesting work. So, um, Serena and a bit flashed your mic. Thank you. Yeah, I also want to um, echo just how much work you just presented. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Um, I wanted to get into. Um, I, I was it's trying to follow along um, the mechanisms, and I wanted to make sure that I got a few things straight. Um, so on the, for the CCK, the, uh, that was the tonic response and it looked like about, uh, you know, about one Hertz frequency. It was putting out these pulses. Now that was the one with the, the CB1 and the uh, retrograde presynaptic inhibition. Is that correct? Right. right. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it known whether the, the that, uh, retrograde inhibition is playing a role in the tonic rhythm? Uh, it is not known, so we don't know that yet. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it, so the activation of CB1 receptors um, will cause suppression of, it'll inhibit release of GABA, but the um, endocannabinoids are lipid molecules and they mm -hmm. tend to have sort of longer lasting actions. So it's uh, that you're, you're correct in that um, that rhythmic uh, CCK burst is about a, it's anywhere from two to four hertz. Um, so it's fairly low frequency, but very, very rhythmic. It's unlikely that that's due to endocannabinoids being released just because they usually have um, a longer action sort of longer acting um okay so they wouldn't activity. be cleared in, in for that frequency um probably not okay so then in the part of human um we had that uh frequency modulated response that looked like it would go from about five to ten hertz or so and then um is that um uh, is that about the range and because that's sort of in the theta Range, right. Right? Well, so that's that is so that's artificially generated because we're we're actually putting high potassium in our solution in order to depolarize all the uh, the cells to um, to in that in that case we wanted to see if we could drive um, tonic activity into a phasic activity. Mm -hmm. So we depolarized all the cells in the slice, including the cell the cells we were recording from. Um, and it really depends when you take a cell, when you take a slice out of the brain, um, you're cutting 90% of the inputs to the neurons. Um, so the activity that we're seeing in our dish is not necessarily ref reflective. I mean, it's reflective. It's not necessarily what you would see in the, um, in the intact brain. Mm -hmm. These, these are fast spiking cells. Um, and you're right that 10 to 20 hertz is not the not the uh, gamma frequency, but the thinking is that these cells in the brain are actually firing at a at a higher frequency. We've sort of uh, goosed it up by putting in a high potassium concentration in order to uh, make them fire. So, because that was that was where I was going to go with that question is where is the gamma oscillation? Is it happening within the theta spike? Or, um, 
that's uh, actually I, our data won't say that, but I mean it is known to happen mm -hmm. in theta um, oscillations embedded in theta oscillations. We don't have um, well, actually, it's interesting because you know when we look, I didn't really get into our our norepinephrine and um, <clears throat> norepinephrine also causes a an increase in in theta, um, and we think that that's what. And I think I sort of have that in one of these slides. We think that actually in this last slide, we think that that's actually being more modulated by the um, CCK response. But um, you're right. The theta, uh, the gamma oscillations are often, you know, high frequency oscillations embedded in in theta oscillations. Um, I I couldn't tell you whether that's going to be required mm -hmm. for um, you know this effect on fear memory or not. Okay, and so finally, as as advertised, that's the bridge to astrocytes because um, you know they're they're known to generate in the theta region and they. Part of their action is driving synchrony in the neurons, mm -hmm. and and so I'm wondering if you'd comment on um, what what you think or what you found um, in terms of the involvement in this mechanism of how the astrocyte, um, both in the calcium regulation and the um, in the theta rhythm syn and, and synchrony. What roles they might play in in this uh, fear conditioning response? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not going to be able to answer that. I don't think. Um, <clears throat> all I can say is that if we, because um, norepinephrine in the hypothalamus activates, so in a different part of the brain, this other part of the brain that we're studying, activates an astrocyte response. Um, and it activates an astrocyte response by first activating um, a calcium response in a in the neuron. The neuron then releases a, um, a what we think is a peptide messenger, and then that activates the astrocytes. And they um, so uh, this is all in response to norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. But we've tried that same experiment in the amygdala. Um, and we haven't been able to, and, and specifically in this uh, particular response, looking at the, the bursting in the CCK neurons and the, and the parvalbumin neurons, and by manipulating the astrocytes, we have not, either by um, their, their gliotoxins that you can use, um, <clears throat> uh, actually that's what we've used, is a, a particular gliotoxin called fluorocitric acid. Oh, is that the uh, gap channel blocker? Um, well, it's not a channel blocker. It actually shuts down metabolism, and it's oh, okay, more or less selective for astrocytes. Mm -hmm. So it just it it inhibits sort of um, signaling within astrocytes, um, and that doesn't really have any effect on our response to nor norepinephrine. Now, that's kind of a crude experiment. Um, but that's all we've tested so far. So I, I can't I can't really answer your question. I don't know what role mm -hmm. the astrocytes are going to be playing in this in this rhythm generation. Interesting, because I, I have read in terms of the uh, communication between the amygdala and the hippocampus that the astrocytes are driving a lot of synchrony in the fear conditioning. So 
I was wondering if uh, any of your experiments have shed light on that. But we haven't we haven't tested that, and I have to admit I don't know that um, literature, so I I need to go look at that. Interesting. Well, just fascinating work. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, do I have anything in the chat? Um, I think Abyss wanted to ask a question. And then I don't know if Denise and Joyce, if you wanted to ask a question too, but yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Kara. Um, thanks, Jeff. This is, uh, wow. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that's packed in here. Yeah, and, I'm sorry. Um, it was so dense. No, no. I mean, like, I'm really appreciating. I'm just like, um, um, I, I'm just mirroring what Kat and Serena were, were saying about the enormity of the work they have done. Um, so I do have some few questions, I guess, like, um, um, first is that, do you think that general suppression of gamma activity, um, generally correlates with, um, suppressing fear? And by that, I mean, um, especially in the cortical area, gamma activity is kind of related to alertness and, um, and do you see that, you know, by essentially, um, activating and reactivating PV and uh, CCK uh, interneurons that you're probably suppressing alertness uh, or at least like have some kind of adverse effect on the, on the, um, on the subjects. I guess I'll start with that one. Well, <clears throat> again, that's a very good question. So um, it's other people's work that's looked at sort of the, the uh, negative correlation between gamma oscillation and, and fear memory recall. And, and norepinephrine is thought to be an arousal signal. So I wouldn't think it's like through decreasing arousal, you know what I'm saying? It's um, <clears throat> now how, you know, how you relate gamma oscillations and, uh, and decreasing gamma oscillations to, uh, you know, the actual retention or recall of a, of a memory and, and this is specifically of a fear memory. Now, I don't know, I don't think anybody's really tested this in terms of sort of a declarative memory or, or a spatial memory that would be more sort of hippocampal based, but it, it'd be certainly worth testing. I mean, I think that, um, and actually, well, actually I, I say that, the, the work that looked at the negative correlation between the gamma oscillations and fear, rec uh, fear recall um, was a hippocampal study. <clears throat> I believe. Uh, so um, I, I, I don't know. It's not, it's not necessarily just arousal. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's because I, I think that norepinephrine is, is an arousal signal for the, for the brain. And so there's certainly a, a signal to attend to whatever's happening. Um, so the question of why when you're trying to recall a memory, so you've acquired a memory and then you ostensibly consolidate it. And then the next day you come back and recall it. <clears throat> um, you know, what, how gamma is, is actually suppressing that recall. Uh, I'm not sure. And it's probably, um, you know, gamma is suppressed in order to, is my hunch, and maybe it's through norepinephrine is in order to, to, you know, be able to recall the memory. And if, 
gamma is activated and unable to be suppressed um, for some other reason because you know you're attending to something else or there's something else going on at the time then then that uh, fear memory uh, is not recalled as well or you don't have access to that memory um, <clears throat> at that particular you know time or under those circumstances but how gamma is suppressing um, the recall of memory I'm not really sure <clears throat> I see um yeah thanks for that and uh, I guess my second question is that um, I guess this is probably beyond the scope of the study but um, I guess like generally I, I'm just wondering what your opinion is on introducing exogenous chemicals that have direct direct impact on the GQ GPCR like uh, psilocybin and then LSD and how they can actually uh, intervene or at least like um, alter the response of these neuropenephric um, uh, interneurons, inhibitory interneurons. Like, what is your general opinion on how these um, um, psychoactive chemicals affect the interneurons um, performance? Well, that's a great question, too. And I, I can't really answer that question directly because we haven't tested that. But I can tell you one of the things I didn't really emphasize and that was really, um, to me, was striking as we were doing the study. And actually, when my student suggested or wanted, asked if he could go off and do this GQ dread experiment um, to try to mimic the uh, effect of norepinephrine, I was very skeptical that just activating, um, you know, G protein, a G protein would do the same thing as a neurotransmitter activating a, a, a real receptor. Um, but it turns out that um, activating any GQ-coupled receptor <clears throat> will cause a similar type uh, activity in these interneurons, um, which was, which totally sort of blew me away because it sort of takes the specificity of the response away from the, away from the not only the neurotransmitter but also the receptor. So. Um, Shin, what uh, one experiment he did was he applied uh, serotonin, actually not serotonin, but a, a, a 5-HT2A serotonin receptor agonist. And the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor is a GQ-coupled receptor. And he found that that did the same thing that caused this, uh, this bursting pattern, <clears throat> um, just like the GQ dread did, just like the alpha-1 receptor, active, uh, adrenergic receptor uh, did. So in other words, any time, so all you have to do is tap into this biochemical signaling pathway in order to drive this activity. And so it brings up the situation that you can do it by different neurotransmitters acting at different receptors. And so then the question is, well, so where's the specificity? <clears throat> you know, why, uh, why uh, how is it that norepinephrine and serotonin will do the same thing? <clears throat> and Really, the answer is that you're getting uh, some combination, especially at, like under a stress, you're getting activation, sort of um, kind of uh, a graded activation of noradrenergic inputs versus serotoninergic inputs versus cholinergic inputs. And under different environmental conditions, different emotional conditions, you might get, you know, 
different levels of those neurotransmitters uh, being released and activating their GQ coupled receptors, or if you're, you know, taking a drug and activating uh, uh, sort of a, a, a um, <clears throat> recreational drug and activating uh, GQ that way, that that's going to influence the um, that's going to add to the effect of norepinephrine or the effect of serotonin activating its GQ receptors. See what I'm saying? So it's a it's sort of a, the end result is going to be a, a, a result of, the, of combining activation of these different, by these different receptors, all converging, converging on this GQ pathway. And maybe, you know, maybe the, the brain doesn't see 100 micromolar norepinephrine, but it sees, you know, 20 micromolar norepinephrine, and it sees 50 micromolar acetylcholine, acetylcholine and it sees 30 micromolar of serotonin, and they're all activating their GQ receptors, and that's causing this, these cells to go into this bursting activity. And then if you throw on top of that, you're taking uh, you know, some exogenous drug that's also tapping into the same pathway, you're gonna actually you know, increase or decrease um, the, uh, those, those neurotransmitters' um, activities. <clears throat> so um, it's really, uh, interesting to me that it's not that you can arrive at the same sort of behavioral endpoint. <clears throat> now, by behavior, I'm talking about electrical behavior of these cells um, through multiple uh, different neurotransmitters and different receptors all converging on the same biochemical signaling pathway, the same. Uh, G protein receptor or G protein signaling pathway. <clears throat> I could ask a question if you're ready for one. Sure. Um, a lot of really great work. Um, I'm just going to take it to a, a sort of a big picture level. And, uh -huh. <laughs> and um, what would you say, what are your greatest hopes for um, your work leading to improvement in health and even just wellness in people who don't have a serious disease. What are what are your daydreams about where this could lead? Uh, thanks. Well, I'm thinking more in terms of people who do have a disease, not not so much in um, you know just improving people's life. Um, one of the things that uh, another surprising finding that Shin came up with is that, and I touched upon this, um, so we talked about different um, alpha-1 receptors, different alpha-2 receptors, different beta receptors. Each of, so there are alpha-1, alpha-2, and beta receptors in the adrenergic receptor family, but each of those has subtypes. So this is an alpha-1 receptor that's being activated, and the alpha-1 receptor is the one that's GQ-coupled. But what was very surprising is when we were, when we labeled the alpha one A receptor. So we got this alpha one A receptor knockout. So there are three different subtypes of alpha one. There's alpha one A, B, and D. <clears throat> we got an alpha one A knockout where there was a, a, a beta galactosidase substitute um, for the alpha one receptor. So we could see where these alpha one receptor expressing alpha one A receptor expressing cells were. And that's, and it turns out that the alpha-1A receptor 
is just on the inhibitory interneurons. The uh, excitatory neurons, the principal neurons, the glutamate neurons have alpha-1 receptors, but they're a different subtype of alpha-1, either alpha-1B or, or D receptors, which means that we could, and so we can activate these alpha-1 receptors. <clears throat> um, we can activate these inhibitory interneurons by activating the alpha-1A receptor. And if we can design drugs, and there are drugs that are ostensibly selective for alpha-1A over alpha-1B and D, and beta and alpha-2 receptors, <clears throat> um, we found that they're not that selective in our hands. But um, this actually raises the possibility that you can now selectively activate inhibitory neurons, leaving you know, the, the excitatory neurons unaffected by your drug. So you can target uh, and either inhibit, either uh, activate or inhibit these inhibitory interneurons, which has huge implications when you think about um, different diseases, like the most obvious is epilepsy, which is a, a disease of, of sort of hyperexcitability, where circuits are hyperexcited or hyperexcitable, and they, they sort of <clears throat> flare up into seizure activity. And if you can increase inhibitory activity, that would uh, tend to bring these circuits back into balance, your, your excitation inhibition balance, um, by increasing the inhibitory inputs to those cells. So bring them out of their hyperexcitability or hyperexcitable state by uh, activating, selectively activating these alpha-1A receptors in inhibitory interneurons. So that's just an example, but I mean, there, there are lots of different um, <clears throat> sort of um, pathologies that relate to an imbalance or that are caused by an imbalance between excitation and in inhibition in the brain. Autism is thought to be one, for example, even, even things like, um, you know, depression. Um, uh, thinking like ketamine, for example, which is this you know, new drug, which is, uh, you know, an NMDA receptor antagonist um, <clears throat> is thought to, to sort of alter that um, excitation inhibition balance and, and uh, serve as a sort of treatment for depression, at least a short-term uh, treatment for depression by restoring that balance. So um, that's one of the things this, uh, this uh, study is sort of... Um, revealed is that this is a possible target, drug target, um, where you can actually get um, a selective uh, sort of a target, these, uh, this one cell type, the inhibitory interneuron, <clears throat> over um, other cells and, and maybe get a, a, a drug that has, um, is effective and has less side effects. Great, great. And, and as I understand it, a lot of uh, mental illnesses have stress and poor sleep as factors involved. So yes. would you think that would address both of those issues, basically? Uh, very, very possibly, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, <clears throat> stress, I mean, that's ultimately what kind of got us into this is stress. <clears throat> um, yeah, and stress does a lot of different things. I mean, there are different. So we've spent a lot of time spend uh, spent a lot of time studying 
corticosteroid uh, actions, and which is a steroid drug, but it has um, rapid actions in addition to slower transcriptional effects, which steroids are sort of classically thought to to have. Um, but this idea of excitation inhibition balance um, and the disruption of, of that balance, I think that it applies uh, to a lot of different conditions and, and can be triggered um, potentially by, um, by stress, um, stress or disruption, sleep disruption or sleep um, <clears throat> deficits. Um, I think that a lot of that can sort of tap into that excitation inhibition balance. I was just wondering about Alzheimer's too. Oh, Alzheimer's, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, Alzheimer's is tricky, but yes. I mean, so Alzheimer's is also there. There is a current of thought. I, th I I'm not an Alzheimer's e expert by any means, but I I know there's a current of thought that it is also a, a disorder of of excitation inhibition imbalance. Um, I know that. I was just reading a, a paper, looking over a paper today on, um, <clears throat> actually it was uh, parvalbumin neurons generating um, oscillations in astrocytes to actually uh, prevent um, A-beta uh, or to decrease A-beta levels and reduce um, you know, uh, A-beta deposits. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, Alzheimer's as well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that is, uh, can also be, I mean, I think we can relate pretty much um, everything back to the balance in the brain. And, you know, the, the balance in the brain of excitation and inhibition, <clears throat> You have excitatory circuits and, and inhibitory circuits, and the job of inhibitory circuits is to keep the excitatory circuits in check and to inhibit them when you know when it's appropriate. And then all the neuromodulation that's layered on top of that, um, <clears throat> and uh, that sort of gives. Uh, well, in this case, I'm, I'm thinking in, in the case of our work, we're thinking it gives sort of salience, emotional salience to those uh, circuits and, and tweaks the circuits to uh, into different patterns of activity, which is, you know, uh, sort of uh, translates that emotional signaling or a signal and, and is a uh, translates that emotional content of the whatever the sensory stimulus is um yeah another thing that comes to my mind is um the immune system there was this paper and then there were a bunch of follow-up papers from from the um, it's from the group that discovered that there's an immune system in the brain they um they saw that interferon gamma gamma um directly um uh, modulates um gaba ergic inhibitory neurons in the prefrontal cortex and then modulates 
their social behavior when exposed to like you know immune deficient mice when they were exposed to um, germs com like inflammation compared to control mice this was when that came out I was so purple like <laughs> I thought this can't be like that <clears throat> gamma and uses such complex behavior like reducing or increasing like social interaction stuff but um you know then more and more stuff came out so it's another interesting a connection there between the immune system and inflammation and then also mental health and and um, these kind of balances absolutely um, it, so we have a uh, we have a, another study looking at alcohol effects in in the basal lateral amygdala and find that that actually, um, so alcohol regulates GABA release. It regulates inhibitory synapses. It causes a, and this is actually a, a, an effect right at the synapse, causes just a, the synapse to dump GABA, increasing synaptic inhibition. But that is uh, surprisingly is, and other people have found this with chronic alcohol um, use and we're, we're finding it with just an acute alcohol um, application that that is blocked by blocking um, the inflammatory cellular inflammatory response. So if we block what's called the uh, the inflammasome, the NLRP um, three inflammasome, or by blocking cytokine uh, receptors, IL one uh, receptors, or by blocking so IL one, which is a, an inflammatory IL one beta an inflammatory cytokine, <clears throat> or by blocking toll-like uh, toll receptors, which are the receptors that are activated by immune, um, <clears throat> like um, immune signals, like uh, like bacteria. Um, we can block this effect of alcohol, <clears throat> and that effect is a very, you know, very acute regulation of inhibitory synapses. So what that tells me is that those toll-like receptors, those uh, inflammatory, um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, that cellular inflammation that is also presumably being activated uh, by, um, by infections, by uh, an immune response, <clears throat> is regulating synaptic inhibition. So it's regulating that, it's affecting your, your um, excitation inhibition balance in the brain and throwing, presumably throwing that off. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And then GABA on the other hand, influences the immune system too. Yeah. So, so an imbalance there, you know, could probably chronic imbalance there could chronic, like could, you know, contribute maybe to like, late on Parkinson and Alzheimer's or all this chronic inflammation early yeah. on. Yeah, so sort of in a, in a yeah. positive feedback kind of way. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. The, would be interesting if one day we could like say to people, like that's my dream. <laughs> um, we take like a sample and then, you know, DNA, RNA sequencing, and we could say, you know, you are more prone to have this loop. So if you get an infection or if you expose to this and that, we should give you steroids for like a week or something. I don't yeah. know. 
to like to not get this this loop started or like to disrupt it that would be really interesting well i'm a real fan of glucocorticoids for that because <clears throat> they're um they're having widespread effects and so a lot of the um so we're finding that glucocorticoids cause endocannabinoid synthesis in different circuits in the brain and that's anti-inflammatory <clears throat> um and that's a rapid effect of the glucocorticoids, the corticosteroids. So uh, it's a way of actually tapping into the, the, through the steroid and a different receptor. We don't really know what receptor it's acting at, but <clears throat> tapping into your endogenous cannabinoid system, um, and which has a lot of beneficial effects in different circuits. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that's really fascinating. Um... So, well, two points, the alcohol um, dumping GABA, um, both the astrocytes and the microglia express GABA receptors, particularly GABA-B. And uh, if the microglia are, are detecting the dump of GABA, like um, it, I'm wondering if that's a mechanism for the inflammatory response. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? So, so my, my thinking right now, although we don't have any data for this, is that the alcohol is acting, uh, activating, because we don't know what receptor. Alcohol can act at GABA receptors directly. In this particular case, it's not. But we think it's acting at the toll, toll receptors. Mm -hmm. And then that's causing an uh, this activation of this NLRP3 inflammasome, which is then causing um, IL-1-beta release. And now whether IL-1-beta is acting directly at GABA synapses or through prostaglandin production, possibly acting at at GABA synapses, but if then GABA activates GABA B receptors in microglia, <clears throat> now it could be that that's shutting down. I mean, this could all be triggered in microglia, right? So microglia might mm -hmm. have these toll receptors and be uh, releasing IL-1 beta, and that this is just a negative feedback potentially. Mm -hmm. Or it could be some kind of positive feedback, depending on what the GABA B receptor is doing to the microglia. <clears throat> Yeah, the astrocytes also express CB1, too. Yeah. I mean, they express about everything on the receptor yeah, side. They do. They I mean, listen in and do stuff. We're finding um, that they, they express vasopressin receptors. <laughs> oh, wow. I learned that one. I, I, um, I did want to um, comment on, in response to a question of Bisro's, um, where you had commented about how there's parent crosstalk and signaling. Um, when I was, you know, back when I was doing some work in GPCRs, um, the different receptors are known to dimerize and heterodimerize. And so yeah. you, can, you can get crosstalk by activating one. And it's, if it's in a heterodimer, it would activate the other and, and yeah. you know, your signals. Can, I wonder if that's, if you, if you have any indication that that might be going on. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't have any evidence for that, but I don't. Well, actually, I say that. Actually, let me back up. I mean, <clears throat> so the alpha one receptor, this alpha one, alpha one A receptor in the parvalbumin neurons and the CCK neurons, <clears throat> normally um, GQ coupled receptors, you know, they couple to uh, diacylglycerol and uh, through mm -hmm. phospholipase C activation, DAG and IP3, and then intracellular calcium release, and 
and then that causes an increase in, in calcium and an activation of, of protein kinase C, and and you get this kinase activation. This uh, response is not blocked by blocking any of those uh, signals. So you block phospholipase C, you don't block the response. You block the PKC, you don't block the response. You block, you empty the um, the cell of calcium of its calcium stores by blocking the calcium pump, mm -hmm. the circa pump. You don't block the response. So it's it's a different um, GQ, but it's GQ cup. It's GQ receptor mediated. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of response. Now, whether I was thinking more that it's maybe acting through the beta, the beta gamma subunit of the G protein, <clears throat> right? But it could be it could be that it's actually acting through a different signaling pathway by by some dimerization with another receptor. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Could very well. Be. <clears throat> I hadn't even thought of that. Wow. That would be pretty cool. I don't know how to test that though. <clears throat> yeah, it was. I think it was regarded as bad news because it adds complexity to everything. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it does <clears throat> a lot of complexity. Like how do? Yeah, how would you check that, Serena? Um, could you do this? You know well, the, 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 oh, the, the thing with the chimerization. You know. Do you do you remember that room? Well, I mean, if the if you are getting dimers or heterodimers forming, you can um, there's agents that can cross-link them and you can characterize them and say, "Aha, you've caught them." Um, oh, so and they, then pull them down. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And they um, and they when they heterodimerize, that you you know, the activation of one makes the other easier to activate. Through the you know there's a synergy and activation so if you've heterodimerized uh, receptors gpcrs that you know maybe one goes for gi and the other's gq you can get crosstalk in the signaling i mean it's it's also so i guess you have two possibilities you could have your your dimerization with a different g protein uh coupled receptor with a gs or gi coupled receptor or you could have it with another GQ coupled receptor, like a serotonin receptor with a with an mm -hmm. adrenergic receptor, <clears throat> both of which, and maybe that's how they're tapping into the same. Well, I doubt like, that. Like because dopamine and opioid receptors, will, yeah. will they're known to to yeah. couple. And you'll get. But I thought just a, a pharmacological experiment where I, if we blocked, um, you know, cyclic AMP signaling. Uh, mm -hmm. And if that blocked the effect of GQ activation, we know that it's activate it's acting through um, the beta gamma, yeah, yeah, or or a, a, an alpha subunit, an alpha S subunit, or alpha I subunit mm -hmm. through dimerization. <clears throat> Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions? Yeah, I think Abyss had the question, and I'm googling if there's an optical way, and there's an optical way to look at dimerization. But anyway, we can bring that up another time. There's an optical detection uh, with the uh, anyways, there are dyes that kind of detect different dimerizations of different things. But anyway, Abyss had the question. If you still have time for one more, and then sure.
Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I was going to ask, like, um, how this study actually could be translated to um, essentially treating um, epilepsy that kind of originate in the uh, cortical or hippocampal area because those are usually associated with um, faulty functioning um, inhibitory interneurons. So in a way, by doing asynchrony of, um, of um, you know, high-frequency oscillations, you can basically prevent epilepsy. So is that something that you're um, thinking of branching into? Because I think that this can have huge impact in that, yeah. in that particular area. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, we are uh, doing some preliminary experiments right now looking at epilepsy because these animals, these alpha-1A receptor knockout animals, <clears throat> so again, this is a global knockout. So they're knocked out of all the alpha-1, all the, all the alpha-1A receptors throughout the brain are knocked out, but they are exclusively, at least in cortical and cortical-like structures in interneurons, inhibitory interneurons, those animals... <clears throat> Um, at when they reach the age of about five months, five and a half months of age, become severely uh, epileptic, but it's stress-induced epilepsy. So, you know, if, the, if we reach our hand into the cage, the animals will go into a, a grand mal seizure. <clears throat> um, so if we stress them in any way, whereas they seem to be normal otherwise in their interactions with the other animals and their, their cage mates, but they have this stress-induced epilepsy. And the thinking, my thinking, and we're sort of doing experiments to try to test this, is that <clears throat> norepinephrine is, um, is a neurotransmitter that acts as a volume transmitter. In other words, it's not a point-to-point -point activation or inhibition. It's sort of, it's released uh, into the extracellular space and then acts in kind of a wave through a certain area of the, of the brain depending on what, obviously, the concentration, and activates all the receptors, including receptors on both inhibitory neurons and excitatory neurons. And both inhibitory neurons and excitatory neurons have alpha-1 receptors, and those alpha-1 receptors and, and um, have their uh, effects on both, uh, both excitation and inhibition. And if you have both that are activated, you can imagine that they might cancel each other out. But if you knock it out of the inhibitory neurons and just now norepinephrine's only activating the alpha-1 receptors in the excitatory neurons, now you've got a hyper-excitable state where and th that, um, those circuits get activated. They're no longer inhibited by the norepinephrine um, you know, drive on the inhibitory circuits. <clears throat> and so, and we're in the process of testing that. So uh, I'm thinking that Again, I come back to this alpha-1A receptor as being a, an anti-epileptic, sort of by increasing, um, increasing activation of these inhibitory interneurons. Um, and if you can design a drug that will target just that alpha-1A subtype, and you can then you can target those neurons and activate them or in inhibit them independent of the alpha-1 receptors, the alpha-1B and D receptors, on the um, on the other types of cells, <clears throat> so uh, I think that this, you know, obviously this is very basic stuff that we're doing, but my hope is that it, you know, might have some translational value going forward. 
potentially. <laughs> Could I ask just one really quick question? Sure. Um, we kind of touched on what might be causes of an imbalance in this activation and inhibition, like maybe infection, stressful events. What, um, what are your other thoughts about what are the, perhaps the causes of these imbalances? <clears throat> Oh, well, um, I think that that's like a, a burning question, like in the epilepsy field is what's causing these circuits to kind of run amok. <clears throat> um, you know, in the, it's been a long time since I worked in epilepsy. I, when I was a postdoc, I worked in a lab that where I did some epilepsy work. Um, <clears throat> and we're trying to get back into it a little bit sort of peripherally now, but at the time, we were looking at, you know, loss of either loss of inhibitory interneurons um, because they tend to have less in the way of calcium binding proteins, or uh, that's actually not true. They they tend to um, they tend to be more susceptible to, um, you know, overactivation. I think. Um, or loss of uh, GABA receptor signaling or, uh, you know, suppression of the GABA receptor signaling. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the, at least from what I remember, and again, I've not, I don't know any, uh, what's happened more recently, but <clears throat> the thinking was that there was a loss of inhibition and that the inhibitory circuits were somehow uh, down-regulated. Um, now, how that happens, um, I think there's, you know, that can happen from physical damage, you know, actual like a blow to the head or, <clears throat> or a, a stroke. Um, so, for example, anoxia, like a um, loss of oxygen due to a stroke. I think that inhibitory interneurons are particularly sensitive, um, and more likely, I think, from if things haven't changed, <clears throat> from when I was paying attention to this more, but. Um, they're more likely to die in, um, you know, an infarcted area of the brain uh, <clears throat> than the excitatory neurons. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I think that's the general thinking. Um, now, you know, epilepsy is a severe condition, obviously, and you get into more subtle situations like. A, like an autism type phenotype or, <clears throat> or a depression phenotype. Um, and if that relates to a, an imbalance between excitation and inhibition, you know, what's actually happening there, that's, that's a million dollar question, I think. Thanks. That, I guess that is a bigger question, than, but I, <laughs> but you did a good job of answering. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Um, I know it's really late. Bizam joined the stage. He's also a neuroscientist um, um, at MIT. So I'm not sure if you have time for. Sure. More. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, I just had just a quick question. Um, I was glancing. I unfortunately missed the presentation, but I've been glancing uh, through your slides. So thank you for um, sharing those. 
Sure. Uh, I noticed um, in your presentation, there was some mention of, of distinguishing uh, inhibitory cell types, and in particular, uh, the distinction between those that target dendritic domains of cells and those that are more perisomatic. Right. Um, but I, from what I've heard, there was a lot of uh, discussions about, um, you know, selectivity at the level of receptors, like GABA A, GABA B, this sort of thing. Um, uh, just a little clarity from where I'm coming from. I study, I study the differential effects of different inhibitory neurons on dendrosomatic coupling within single cells in the pyramidal neurons. Uh-huh. But the thing that we're always paying attention to is uh, all of these, the, the variety of different inhibitory motifs that these circuits are embedded in. So, uh, for instance, um, an increase in inhibition might actually have uh, paradoxical effects, right? Because there's lots of polysynaptic uh, motifs going on. In, in other words, right. Right. depending on the cell type and what laminar layer you're in, if you're in the cortex, I think you're, it sounds like you're working mostly in the amygdala. Yeah. <laughs> but depending on where you are in the circuit and which cell is, is being activated, it could have, you know, all, all sorts of different uh, effects. Yes. So I'm absolutely. curious if you're looking at the specificity across cell types. Well, um, we're looking at, uh, I mean, so we've been focusing on this noradrenergic modulation of these inhibitory circuits. And, and actually what I've been talking about is the activation of, of pretty much the perisomatic uh, inhibitory interneurons, the parvalbumin and CCK, uh, subtypes of cells. <clears throat> um, and, but that accounts for about, and, and, and that, that's because activation of those cells by norepinephrine generates this patterned activity, um, which differs between the two cell types. One's a repetitive, um, bursting pattern, um, in the PV, the parvalbumin neurons, and the other's a sort of a, a very metronomic, kind of um, tonic activation that go that that activates and then and then desensitize or inactivates <clears throat> um, but that only actually and I didn't mention this that accounts for about 50% of the total response inhibitory interneuron response um, to norepinephrine based on looking at the the principal cell the postsynaptic principal cell and inhibitory postsynaptic currents in the principal cell, right? So that means that those basket cells, those perisomatic cells, um, and their response to norepinephrine only accounts for about 50% of the total response, which means to me that it's probably the more dendritic projecting uh, inhibitory interneurons that account for the other 50%. <clears throat> and I'm assuming those are the ones that you're you're studying because you're looking at dendrosomatic coupling, um, <clears throat> but that's not a that's not a pattern response. Um, that's that's about the extent of it. We're not really um, we haven't gotten we actually haven't delved into that residual fifty percent that's not accounted for by the CCK and PV neurons um, and what those iPSCs 
look like, which ostensibly would be more um, sort of diskly generated iPSCs, and what they do um, to the the output of the of the the principal neuron of the of the BLA. Um, so I can't really tell you more than sort of um, <clears throat> and we're not, and in terms of like sort of postsynaptic GABA receptor activation, we've been focusing on um, the you know the phasic response, the iPSCs, um, so GABA A mediated response, and not not um, not a tonic uh, GABA A receptor or a GABA B receptor um, response. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or if I'm adding any yeah. clarity. <clears throat> yeah, totally. Um, the other interesting thing to think about, just from looking at um, the presentation, you're uh, talking about the uh, burst firing and how this might be recruited by the fear response. Um, that also has really interesting effects um, in terms of the way it engages inhibitory circuits versus um, non-burst firing. Um, yeah. yeah, super interesting. Well, Thanks I mean, I'm, fa I'm fascinated in this bursting activity of the of the PV neurons, the parvalbumin neurons. I, I don't know that it's been described before, and it and it's really, really. Um, conf uh, sort of unclear how these neurons can generate a 30-second cycle of bursting and silence, and the burst really lasts for less than a second, maybe a second or so, <clears throat> and then there's 30 seconds of silence or 20 seconds of silence, and then another burst, and it's not due to any kind of calcium wave inside the cell or... Um, and, and it's not due to, um, to gap junction coupling or any kind of synaptic coupling between these cells because we can block all the receptors, all the, uh, at least the glutamate and GABA receptors, and still drive this bursting activity. So, um, and then, you know, I don't know what that's doing to uh, downstream inhibitory neurons that might be receiving these inputs. Um, yeah. I mean, all that's pretty fascinating to me <clears throat> in terms of circuit activity. Great. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Jeff, uh, for, um, first of all, sharing this, you know, amazing science story with us um, that, you know, is so elaborate and like so much skilled, beautiful work. And for then additionally staying so long and ask, entering all this question, it was a wonderful discussion. I really enjoyed this room. So I um, really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. I really, um, I've enjoyed it. It's been like nothing I've ever done before in a good way. Uh, I think it's been really a, a joy. Thank you. <clears throat> Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot of appreciative messages. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming and feel always free um, or welcome to come and update us maybe with in the future with ongoing research or um, uh, other projects you're working on. Um, you know, feel 
feel always invited, basically. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'd love to come back. Wonderful. <clears throat> and um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys, right. and the best. And yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thanks, yeah, everybody. Thanks for your, yeah, uh, thank your you. great feedback. Wonderful conversation. Yeah, it was very nice. Yeah, so thank you everyone for coming and asking questions. And um, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We'll have uh, more rooms like this. We have tomorrow room that will discuss um, the brain, a brainstem secretary for nausea suppression uh, with Dr. Tseng. And uh, on Friday, we'll have a room, a physics room, a quantum physics room about how electrons can take a fast and a slow lane all at once. Uh, so it, it's a really new, interesting insight into quantum physics. And uh, we'll have more rooms uh, throughout the month and September, a few already planned. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, this was a wonderful discussion and room. Thank you, Jeff. This was really, um, yeah, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. <clears throat> okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.